0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Daphne Miller is a practicing family physician, best selling author, associate clinical professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and research scientist at the University of California, Berkeley. For the past 15 years, her work has focused on aligning agriculture and conservation with human health and today we're going to cover that as well as my new favorite term here on Mind Body Green super weeds. Daphne, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast with you.
0: Well, it's so great to finally have you and let's start at the beginning. How did you get interested in health and the environment, and global upbringing included. How, how did this all come to be a passion for you?
1: Yeah, well, I, I am the daughter of a career Peace Corps parents, and I grew up overseas mostly in North Africa and Morocco and Tunisia. And the thing about being in the Peace Corps is it's kind of the opposite of being a a military child in that you're, it's similar in the sense that you are kind of dragged around from country to country, but there's this expectation that you're going to live very much in a local community, uh, go to local schools, learn the local language, and very much integrate yourself into the culture. And so I think for me, from a very young age, there was this set of skills of how do you get plopped down in a new place and become a part of the fabric of life there. And And from super young age was very clear to me that food and connection to ceremony was this great international passport and international language and even if i arrived in a new school and did not speak the language at all and had no idea of what the customs were that i could start to connect through food and i think soon thereafter there was this growing awareness of the very close tie between food and healing. And I saw it in holidays and ceremonies and family gatherings. And, and that just became kind of uh, a, a given for me that the, all these things were interconnected. And I think it was really a surprise for me coming back to the States when there wasn't that 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 kind of understanding that, you know, everything from medicine to community connectivity to food, that that these are all just one thing.
0: (laughs) So were there any particular countries or practices that stand out? Realize you wrote a book about this, but, you know, could you share a bit?
1: Sure. I mean, what for me is, was so striking. And I think the book you're referring to is The Jungle Effect, which is a book i wrote much, much later when I was already a physician and wanting to help my patients who had ancestors that came from different parts of the world and that were in the U.S. and struggling with diseases at a young age that that were diet and and lifestyle-related diseases and that were health problems that their parents and grandparents who had grown up in another culture had not experienced and part of the project of that book was to go back and sort of reinvestigate their native cultures and understand what might have been protective and bring that back, that knowledge back to my patient in in the bay area in San Francisco and doing that project very much brought me back to my childhood and some of the themes that were there of community, connectivity, and also a very physical lifestyle, but also a set of, of basic eating principles that we had lost with sort of the introduction of a Western diet. And what was striking it, uh, to me during that project was that there are so many different ways to eat healthy. And all of these cultures had different tastes, different food compositions, what have you. And then at the end of the day, there really is only one way to eat in an unhealthful way. <laughs> and that was you know, pretty much the one that we had embraced here in the U.S. and that was sort of making its way around the world, highly processed foods and tons of processed vegetable oils. and But describing these traditional diets from everywhere, from Cameroon in West Africa to Crete to Northern Iceland, they were all actually quite different with vastly different amounts of animal protein and different types of herbs and spices, but all keeping populations very healthy. I think for me, one of the... the the diet that so was possibly the most foreign was from Northern Iceland, just because there, there was an in- enormous amount of animal product in that diet, <laughs> which is not how I tend to eat at all, but was one that had really survived because it was for the local community, delicious, uh, reflected the resources that were there locally, and at least within that genetic pool was associated with longevity
0: wow and that, and that so there were a lot of animal products in that community
1: there were yes wow
0: interesting i'm curious whether I'm like spe-
1: what i'm proposing as the way to eat healthy.
0: no no I, I agree it's just so interesting i'm curious yeah. like was it specific was it poultry was it beef was it oh, lamb or-
1: it was lamb and fish yeah
0: got it well that kind of I would say if you're going to if you're going to consume more animal products those would be the two that probably make more sense.
1: Well, what was interesting I discovered was that both the lamb and the fish in that case were very rich in omega-3 fats, which is something we normally associate with fish, but I guess the lamb eating the the grasses that uh grew uh, in that particular area, it was a, a vegetation that was in itself very high in omega-3 fats, and these were sort of free-range lamb. And so they also, when they looked at their fat composition, it was also had a fair amount of omega-3 fats in it.
0: Fascinating. And so I'm gonna segue, you mentioned to the grass-fed lamb, to soil. And you've described food as, quote, the soil that makes up our cells. Beautiful, beautiful phrasing. Could you elaborate on this notion that the soil that makes up our cells.
1: Well, it's very simple that you know our we are constantly having a turnover of cells in our body, and that the building blocks there are indeed our food, the things that we consume, and everything that we consume originates either in soil or in the aqueous version of soil, which is the ocean or waterways. So it's just simply the idea of where the source of our food comes from. And I think as obvious as that is, I think that it's a bit surprising to some folks when they begin to think about it simply because at least here in the US, we are so disconnected from where our food comes from and the production source of our food. I, I might add that there are we are starting to have more sort of lab-grown <laughs> food, but even some of the substrates for that ori- originate in the soil, the things that they're using to grow that food in the lab. But I, I, without soil, we would be hard-pressed to stay nourished.
0: And so on the subject of knowing where our food comes from, there's this idea of, of healthy farming. How do you think about, quote-unquote, healthy farming? And what does that look like? What are the keys to healthy farming, if you will?
1: Yeah, well, I have to put in a plug for a great book that just came out uh, by uh, a journalist named Sarah Mock. And uh, the book is called Farm and Other (laughs) F-Words. And she basically makes the case that here in the United States, at least, and it was her traveling around to all these different farms looking for the sort of perfect, healthy farm, that we have not achieved that here, even in some of the more ideal, perfect farms that we might be attached to, that we, we really are far from getting to that uh, concept of, of the perfect healthy farm. But the principles of, of healthy farming really in, in, in my mind are twofold. One is that it needs to be place-based and very much how I just described how there's many ways to eat healthy or many kinds of healthy diets. The practice of producing the food itself needs to reflect both the local knowledge, the local resources, the local culture in terms of food taste, the local economy. So it's going to look very different in Indiana versus in Malawi. And trying to have technology or practices for farming that are universal is not going to work. So place-based, it needs to be scale appropriate or reflecting the scale of of the demand in that region. And this idea that we have of the kind of these centralized industrial farms that produce food for the globe do not have the opportunity to either be place-based or scale-appropriate in what they're doing and end up being very extractive. And then the third piece is that it has to really um, uh, be based on a regenerative or cyclic concept. And I know people are hearing of regenerative ag as kind of a buzzword, but I'm talking literally cyclical, so that you're taking the resources from that area, using them to produce your food, and then taking the waste and putting it back into that same farm. The same with the economy, that you're using local money uh, both to produce the food to pay workers and to drive the food chain. And then that money is going back into the production of the farm. That the ownership is local and reflects the makeup of that of that community. And that it also has very much of a local health cycle as well. And I care about that, obviously, as a physician that, you know, that what is being produced is used to support health equity in that region and make sure that the most vulnerable folks who have the least access to nutrients are the ones who get it First and potentially get a higher proportion of it. So, you know, all of these that you use local seeds, that you use local fertilizer from that area, grow your own fertilizer on the farm, all these different pieces. So really driving a cycle of nourishment and health.
0: So as you mentioned, there, there are lots of different ways to eat healthy vegetables, beef, egg, herbs, so on and so on. If you talk to a farmer, what do you think they would say are the most important factors to healthy growth and development? What does a farmer want to see?
1: It depends on the farmer. Just like saying, if you talk to a doctor or if you talk to anybody, there's lots of different farmers with lots of different philosophies out there, the same as there are with physicians or other health practitioners. But what I have been really surprised over the decades of traveling around and both interviewing farmers and being asked to give workshops and presentations is how many of them actually do embrace the idea that their primary role is to be givers of help in their community. And I know we have a bit of a stereotype now of the farmer who's just working on an enormous commercial scale and very much disconnected from their eaters or their community and this idea of the industrial farm. Whereas what I've been surprised at is how many farmers really want to be civic minded, give back locally and so on. I think what's getting in the way for them is very much the same thing that's getting in the way for a lot of doctors is the commercialization, the intervention of industry that's just trying to sell them products, pharmaceuticals with an F or a PH, rather than thinking in a complexity way about how to use local resources to grow their food. But I think that a lot of farmers really do want to find a way to protect their land and protect their communities. And a lot of them are seeing their soil run off into rivers or blow off into the sky. A lot of them are seeing kind of the diminishing returns from fertilizers, commercial fertilizers, and the application of herbicides and, and pesticides. And they're not realizing the same yields that they used to. And so there is very much, I think, among the n- next generation of farmers, the search for a new way. But it's really, it's both the model that, that a lot of them are missing, the, the technological and methodological support. They don't have a thought community to be a part of. And so that's a piece that hopefully is growing now.
0: I love that. And I love that you, you said pharmacy with an F. And as you discussed earlier, as we discussed earlier, you've got a lot of issues right now. You know, in America. A lot of people are overweight. Diabetes is a big problem. A lot of people are lacking movement. Coming out of COVID, a lot of people are anxious, depressed, fatigued. So if you throw on your doctor's hat and you think of a pharmacy with a, with a capital F and not the PH, are there certain foods you would recommend for those woes, whether it's movement, anxiety, energy, et cetera?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I would caution you is that, that it really is the whole approach and not just the foods themselves, once again. So what I work in a community in North Richmond here in California that is one of the lowest income communities in the Bay Area. It's a majority minority community, so primarily Latinx and African American, they have the greatest exposure to environmental toxins with the Chevron refinery right nearby and live in it sort of choked out, out by freeways on all sides. So environmentally already at an enormous disadvantage and with a long history of exploitation and you know redlining and racism. And so all of those pieces also contribute to ill health and it's not just food, but they also happen to have in that community, the least access to fresh fruits and vegetables in the form if you were to count grocery stores, farmers markets, all those things. So it's a matter of fixing all of the environmental pieces and not just offering a couple superfoods. But that being said, One of the projects that we're working on is this circular food economy, connecting some of the wonderful local farms to the community and the patients, starting to grow food more locally. And what I'm seeing is this expansion of the uh, terrace and front yard, backyard, side yard, sidewalk farming movement. And I see that as as a really an amazing source of both nutrients and beautification in the neighborhood. And what a lot of folks are growing are kind of these either more drought resistant, which is really important in California, where we have no water, or nutrient intense foods. So spices, for sure. The oreganas, the thymes, the rosemaries, the, the alums, all of these things that have give you a lot of nutrition bang for your buck and that tend to be perennial. I see vertical vines growing like chayote, which is a perennial vine, or the kale trees, which I'm a huge fan of which are these perennial trees that produce the most delicious, buttery, sweet kale leaves, and which you can really kind of take everything from tons of water to a minimum of water. And nopales, which are the cactus pads, which... Really, take no water, are wonderful perennial um, plants and are not just low glycemic, in in other words, having low amounts of sugar, but actually have substances in them that make them anti diabetic, the same as the chayote. So, that really have this pharmaceutical effect. So, and peppers which are really great both as anti-inflammatories and you can get, grow these little tiny peppers that really just give you enormous amounts of nutrient and flavor. So so these are all vegetables that do very well within local soil and that give right back in terms of nutrition and are kind of an example of that full cycle of goodness.
0: I love it. And before I have a follow-up question on gardening, but before I go there, I'm glad you mentioned accessibility. It's a huge issue. A quote I've mentioned previously on the show is the, the famous soundbite from Ron Finley, the gorilla gardener in LA, where he famously said, I think it was in a TED Talk, more people in South Central get killed by drive throughs than they do by drive-bys. And then he segued to say, if I want an organic tomato, I got to drive 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so it speaks to this issue of accessibility. It's a systemic issue. You start to get in, it's complicated. You start to get into subsidies. What what we, what we subsidize as a government, we subsidize corn. It's like a whole other discussion, food stamps, et cetera, but it's an important issue. And why I love what you just said about gardening. I think a lot of people become overwhelmed quickly. I don't have enough space. I'm not a farmer. I'm worried about drought. I'm worried about rain. And I think you don't necessarily need a lot of space to take things in your own hands. So, I'm going to go there. Like, for anyone listening who's just got really excited by all the beautiful herbs and vegetables you just talked about, what advice do you have for someone who wants to get started with just like a planter or a little pot of land? Like, how do you approach this, whether you're dealing with cold season, inclement weather? Like, how do you get started?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, it, just start anywhere. And if you don't have a good soil, or you're worried about the soil in terms of contamination with lead or other heavy metals, then just do a planter box to start with and do a little investigation into what is some you know good, nice organic compost that you can get locally. And I am a big fan of permaculture, sort of more perennial farming, because I don't like to have to replant every season. So everything that I just mentioned has a perennial uh, form, possibly with the exception of the peppers. The chayote is this amazing vine that then kind of recedes itself in terms of the bulbs. It makes this delicious, oh, also low glycemic squash. If you're uh, in the mid in the Southwest, or out here in the West, the Nopale cactus or you just cut off one pad and you can actually even eat it raw. There's a great way to prepare it raw and make a salad with it. It's delicious with lime or lemon. Herbs tend to reseed themselves. There's even perennial spinach now. I mentioned the kale trees. And that way you're just every season just maintaining what you have. Uh, And there's wonderful, all kinds of wonderful books on uh, small-scale perennial gardening now. One of them that's coming to mind is called Gaia's Garden, G-A-I-A, apostrophe S, garden. But I've been making a practice in North Richmond in the area where my clinic is of going around and visiting some of these little pocket gardens that folks are maintaining. And I'm just Amazed at the amount of nutrients coming out of it. And I'm actually trying to figure out a way to start to document that a little bit more system, you know, in a systematic way to really describe the nutritional value of these gardens. If any of your listeners actually are aware of literature that does that, I'd love to hear because I've been having a really hard time getting nutritionists to work with me on this, but in the same way that you might look at a package of food <laughs> or a meal and be able to count nutrients, I'd love to be able to start to do it with these gardens so we have a better sense of how they're, you know, what they're doing in terms of nourishment.
0: So I'm curious, you have a lot of people who moved <laughs> during the pandemic and post-pandemic. Is there an easy way for someone to know if the the soil they have they're working with is good soil versus bad soil is there a quick hack for that
1: yeah uh, do you usually you can get your local either the master gardeners or gardening group to um, come and help you do soil tests i would connect with whatever i mean every community now seems to have a master gardener group and have them there are commercial soil tests that you can just buy because the big concerns are cadmium lead historically knowing what was happening on that land, for example. You know, was there a gas station there? Those kinds of things. But the, it, it, it's it, it, testing is fairly accessible and there's labs you can send it off to. What's surprised me over the years in terms of hearing the results of soil tests is how often you think it's going to be a disaster and it's actually fine. For example, I in the mid-Bronx, I wrote about a series of community gardens there, one of which was literally between the Metro North track and the Amtrak and the freeway. And you would think that it just there was all kinds of problems. But because it had such a heavy leaf cover every year, that actually had protected the soil when they ended up doing the testing. And I published a study with some colleagues of mine here at UC Berkeley, looking at the heavy metal content of plants that were grown in soil that we knew to be contaminated in in West Oakland, in an industrial area. We published it in PLOS One Science two years ago. And what was so amazing there was even when the soil was contaminated, the tissue of the plants themselves was not And I cannot say that's a universal rule, but with plants that have a fast turnover and they tend to filter out to not actually uh, absorb the heavy metals. And I do not want to at all convey to your listeners that's a hard and fast rule. And I would not just assume that plants are able to do that. In fact, some plants are really good at sucking up heavy metals, but it was pleasant. We were testing edible wild plants, such as mallow and lamb's quarters, and dandelion, and bristly ox tongue, and dock, and none of them had high levels of lead or cadmium, even when the soil was contaminated. These are kind of what we would think of almost as invasive weeds, but they all have a culinary, they're all very nutritious and have culinary value. And they did not reflect at all the bad stuff that was in the soil.
0: Wow. Wow. So when it comes to soil science, are there any innovations you're excited about?
1: Well, that's, innovation is an interesting term, right? Because I think that there's lots of innovations out there that have been there for hundreds of years Practiced by indigenous cultures that sort of Western science has not paid attention to and is finally starting to pay attention to in terms of intercropping and companion planting and perennial cropping and different types of irrigation systems and traditional seeds that are much more climate resistant. And so I think of those as innovations, even though, you know, there are indigenous and traditional cultures who originated these ideas they are just unknown to those of us who have had our heads stuck in either academia or in very much of a eurocentric paradigm but if you're talking more like technology and using computers and nanotechnology and genetic modification and things like that I don't close the door on on those forms of innovation at all. And I think that when fused sometimes with these other less, less modern innovation-intent technologies, that together they really can give you pot- potentially a more perfect form of farming. Some of the examples I give are when it comes to raising animals on agricultural land, we've discover that a rotational grazing is a very useful way of doing that. So basically, for example, using your poultry or your cattle, on one acre very intensively to both disturb the soil and get it enlivened, but also to put fertility back into the soil with the animal poop, basically. And my favorite innovation there are just these movable electric fences (laughs) that make it a lot easier to concentrate them and move them from paddock to paddock. Now, that's not a very high-tech innovation, for sure, and could have been reproduced hundreds of years ago with something else, but but it makes it a lot easier easier to do that. Something that is a little bit more technology intense would be an example of precision agriculture, where farmers really are able to read both nutrient needs and soil needs and even plant needs on a square foot by square foot basis. And it allows for really using water very sparingly and using fertilizer incredibly sparingly by being able to get these very immediate readouts. And I, that, for me, has interesting potential.
0: Hearing you speak about the combination of the old and the new, I think there are very interesting parallels to how we view medicine here. The combination of Eastern and Western, precision medicine, lab testing. Sometimes you need acupuncture. Sometimes you need more kale. Sometimes you need a pharmaceutical intervention. It's, they're not mutually exclusive.
1: Absolutely. That is a perfect analogy. I think the only problem is that our pyramid for both of these, our hierarchy of use is very much messed up. And that if you were to imagine this as escalating pyramid of use, the base of the pyramid really should be these things that are relatively low input technology. So really using traditional seeds and agriculture in the same way as in medicine it really is looking at nutrition and lifestyle and community connectivity as the foundations of health and the same in agriculture really looking at local fertility local practices traditional seeds as the basis for climate smart nutrient smart farming
0: so With regards to to climate change, I I think it's accurate to say that our audience is passionate about it. They want to do the right thing, but it's also often confusing when it comes to consumption in the real world, whether that's grocery shopping or just consumption in general. What are some of the common errors that eco-conscious shoppers make when they go purchase goods?
1: Well, obviously, our footprint here in the United States is inordinately huge, not just because of the food we eat, which is certainly a piece of it, but, you know, our whole lifestyle. There has to just be, you know, we have to embrace this idea of really living more like we did during the pandemic of not moving around quite as much, using our bodies a lot more, much more for mobility, having our entertainment being just being in nature, uh, you know, with our... Loved ones, things like that. So, I do feel like the pandemic gave us a little bit of a roadmap for how to live in a more, uh, a smaller and less invasive way on the land, on the landscape in general. But in terms of our diet, A, we should stop embracing the idea of these superfoods that are the things that are going to magically keep us healthy. And by superfood, I mean everything from acai which we exploit from the rainforest to things that are a little bit more mundane but you know really starting to think about what works in your local landscape what are the foods that you can grow there you know and that's everything from beans to all the nutrients that the fruit the vegetables that i described earlier and to start to think more about overwintering too what can we conserve dry i'm a big fan of drying fruits and vegetables it's really a a great way to keep them freeze and so on.
0: So if you could force one idea into the collective consciousness, when it comes to the ecology of our farms and bodies, what would it be? One idea? Uh, Very
1: much this idea of place-based and having that run through all the different levels, including understanding the diversity of your local culture and how that gets reflected and what you're doing, the economy, the ecology, the local knowledge, but really starting to question where you are and how that should inform all of these pieces.
0: I love that. Don't, uh, you know, when it's winter and there is a specific vegetable that is not indigenous to your area, maybe go for another vegetable that is indigenous to where you live.
1: Yeah. And really try and relearn what that means. I mean, there's, there is a tremendous amount of of regional wisdom, and when I say place-based, I don't mean your town or your county. It could even be your part of the U.S. or your part of the wherever you are on the globe. I mean, I, we do have to have a little bit of an expanded view of that, and but really start to question who are who has the knowledge here, and understand that doesn't just come from land grant universities or technology com- companies or corporations, but really from indigenous communities, local healers, elders in the community, and so on.
0: So my last question, I think, is a fun one. You rattled off so many incredible herbs, and I think there were a lot of new names. So my question to you is, do you have a a favorite underrated herb? Because we all hear, like, the same names all the time.
1: Favorite underrated herb? I mean, I just grab handfuls of, I probably have four or five different kinds of mint that just grows around my garden. Oregano, probably three or four types. Thyme, probably six or seven types. Marjoram, a couple types. So it's the regular stuff. Okay. Okay. (laughs) But maybe what I feel is the most underrated are some of the wild, I think, Many of your listeners might consider them weeds uh, that grow up in my garden. Uh, And I mentioned some of those like dandelion and oxalis and bristly ox tongue and dock and wild three quarter onions and mallow. These are all delicious. And I pick them all nasturtium. I pick them all and put them in my salad. I don't uproot them.
0: I love it. The power of the weeds.
1: The power of the weeds, for super sure. Super
0: weeds. They're super weeds.
1: They are super weeds. And actually, if you think about it, they have all the characteristics that you really want in a plant that's going to be uh, climate resistant and perennial and really make it through dark times because they have survived without being watered or encouraged for generations. And so they really have that that persistence
0: I love it. I think we had a breakthrough on this show. As you, we, we all talk superfoods all the time, we don't talk super weeds.
1: Absolutely, yeah. No, that is probably. I, I'm writing a chapter about them in this book project that I'm working on. So to be determined later.
0: <laughs> I love it. Well, Daphne, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: You're welcome, and I hope your listeners enjoy the information.